Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show presented by Any Question. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. Well, I have just finished a conversation that went all too quick. This conversation with Barry Shepley, longtime friend. The guy is just so passionate about the world of triathlon. He's been in it and around it for the last 40 years, whether that be a coach or commentator or president of Triathlon Canada or heading up the Kids of Steel races that he has in Canada. He's been so involved in it for so, so long. Just a big heart. He really loves all the athletes and the people in the world of triathlon and just some really fantastic stories. He has a book that's just come out called Chasing Greatness that you've got to go check out. He has There's 18 chapters in there with just so many wonderful stories. Um, you'll be inspired, you'll be entertained and you'll learn a little bit from it as well. I think it's just a really great book. So go check it out. That's Chasing Greatness. You can support Barry by doing that. You can also find Barry on Any Question. So he'll be able to answer any follow-up questions you might have for him on the Any Question platform, which you can download on iOS or Android. So go check that out. Any Question, free for the first hour check out Barry Shepley there and a little bit of housekeeping before we go on I just want to thank you again for listening this show continues to grow and I'm loving it you know to have these conversations once a week with some of the most awesome people in the world it just truly is fantastic I'm loving all your feedback I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did and remember success comes to those who endure just one moment longer All right, today I'm joined by a true Canadian and triathlon legend. He's a professional coach, Olympic and World Cup triathlon commentator, and mentor to many professional athletes. For over 30 years, he has influenced the world of triathlon for the better, starting the Kids of Steel Triathlons in Canada, where the future Olympic gold medalist Simon Whitfield developed his craft. He was also the Canadian head coach during the 2000 Sydney Olympics where that same Simon Whitfield won gold. Add to that his commentary for the World Cup series for the better part of 20 years. And if you're in triathlon, you no doubt know who he is. His new book, Chasing Greatness, has just been released where he shares his stories about sport and life. And whether you're a sports fan or not, this book just carries so many beautiful lessons. He's been a mate of mine for 20 years and I'm excited to have this opportunity to chat. So welcome and thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show. Barry Shepley, how are you, mate? Uh, it is an honor after uh, watching and listening to you uh, in your career and then a chance to watch the podcasts uh, on a weekly basis. It's, it's been great to finally have the chance, Greg. Uh, mate, the honor and privilege is all mine. And uh, it's one of these, I've been on you for... <laughs> a while to come on the show and we decided the best timing for this would be after the release of new book so I finally got you um and you have been heavily requested by the way um there are a lot of fans of Barry Shepley out there that will be excited that finally you are on the show so thanks for joining me again mate I really appreciate it well you and I could spend uh, two weeks with all the stories <laughs> we have so we'll have to truncate it down to a shorter period of time but it's it's been quite a journey and you know, so much of my life has been interconnected with yourself, with Laura, with, you know, all aspects, training, racing, and then, you know, the stuff we've been doing since you retired has even been more exciting. Mm. And, and tell me, mate, we were just talking pre-show and you emailed me that you went off to have breakfast with one of the all-time Canadian legends, Laurie Bowden. Um, for breakfast. How was that catching up with a, you know, what was she? She Two or three times did she win Kona? I know she was about seven or eight times on the podium at the Kona. Your knowledge is, is pretty damn good. She, in fact, I, she's so humble that still to this day, she, 
she sort of knows, yeah, I think I won in that year or whatever. So I had a reminder at breakfast. Uh, I'm not many people have done what she accomplished seven straight years. She was on the podium in mm-hmm. Hawaii, seven straight years, two wins, uh, multiple victories at Ironman Canada and around the world. Okay. And she did it in that kind of laid back, smiling, you know, humble Lori Bowden style. Oh, she's and, just beautiful, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's just yeah. a wonderful person. So it must have been a real delight to catch up with her. Um, it, it got me thinking, though, you know, when you, you said you were having breakfast with her. And I started thinking about the great Canadians. And, and excuse me, I don't mean this to sound condescending or bad, but I don't look at Canada and go, oh yeah, they're the world's greatest in terms of triathlon. You think Australia and everything else. And then you start to go back in history and it's like, there might not have been huge, huge depth, but the people that made it to the top really made a mark. And when I look at Heather Fear, who gold and silver at Ironman 70.3, Peter Reed. You know, he was also three-time Kona Ironman world champion, seven times on the podium as well. Um, Simon Whitfield, who we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, gold and silver at the Olympics and everything else he did. Um, and then looking more recently, you know, Paula Finley and Lionel Sanders. And the list just keeps going on of athletes that have made a tremendous impact on the world stage. And, and for the better part, you've had some involvement with all of them. Yeah, well, you know, when it's such a small family, first of all, and... At one point I wrote an article, and this is certainly not to, you know, Canadianize this particular uh, podcast, but, you know, to do a 20 second brag, I mean, you go back even earlier, the Puntus sisters, <laughs> now, you, know, you had to really be around the sport back into the 80s. But imagine twin sisters dozens and dozens of times crossing the finishing line at the USTS, you know, triathlons, first and second, actually equal tie. <laughs> they were twin sisters. They lived together. Uh, they won the Hawaii Ironman back when it was just getting on television. You know, so they were that first generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my fondest memories ever was in your country, 1991 World uh, Championships in the Gold Coast. Mm-hmm. This young kid, Miles Stewart, you know, <laughs> in that sprint finish with Mike Pig. But about four minutes before that incredible finish happened, Joanne Ritchie crossed the line uh, from Kelowna, British Columbia That's to win right. the world championships. And her Canadian teammate, Terry Smith Ross, crossed the line. And two other Canadians, you know, with Carol Montgomery and Sue Schlatter, four Canadian women in the top 10 at world champs. If that ever happened today that you had, you know, three or four people, your mind would be blown yeah. at how well your country did. So these are all athletes that were literally, literally ahead of their time. And it all goes back to one guy, in my estimation, Les McDonald, another Canadian. And Les opened the door for all of those individual athletes to get a chance to go to Australia, to race around the world. Uh, And he also opened up a door for a young guy named Graham Fraser, you know, to host the 1992 World Championships. And that really, in my estimation, Graham could probably tell you differently or or maybe different, but... (laughs) I believe that Les McDonald opened the door that allowed Graham Fraser to host the world championships, eventually, you know, create North American Ironman and all the incredible things that Graham and Sue Fraser did, you know, in their era. And that's, you know, another Canadian. So we had these moments and Mm -hmm. we got lucky. We were close to where it all started in California in, you know, in 1974. And, and so Canada's proximity to the United States, we benefited. Les was on the West coast. 
you know, his vision of getting us into the Olympics, uh, all were benefits. And all of these Canadians from athletes to race directors to coaches all benefited because of our proximity to the United States, to the sport and to Les McDonald's kind of energy that he emitted out to Canada and then to the rest of the world. Yeah, I love that quick summary. It brings back so many fond memories. You know, I, going back to the 1991 World Champs on the Gold Coast, I think I was, I guess I was 19. Miles Stewart was only about six months older than me. And, and, and that incredible sprint finish, if anybody wants to go YouTube, but that's a pretty cool one to go watch is this young buck, this young punk sort of sprints around uh, Mike Pig, Pig Power, and, yeah. uh, and Rick Wells, who basically the New Zealander who's, you know, one of the all-time greatest and definitely of the 80s. And he kind of tucked inside them both for the final sprint to take the win on the Gold Coast there. It was a, it was a big moment because that's, you know, it was Miles' hometown and everything. So that celebration, a little shout out for Miles. For me, those memories, are, you know, now we're talking 30 years ago. It blows your mind, doesn't it? That you're like, wow, how, how quickly life goes by. And the evolution, you know, that, that world championships in 91 uh, really took things to the next level. You'll remember, you know, they had the run over ramps where you came over the water and you biked underneath the huge <laughs> crowds on the Gold Coast. And, you know, we've been back to the Gold Coast many times for world champs and other big events. And, you know, but Australia was, you know, the zenith. I mean, I, I came home mind blown that a country of, you know, 20 million at the time could be producing so many incredible athletes. And, mm -hmm. you know, then the opportunity for all of these athletes to go and spend the North American winter uh, in Australia and to do those incredible fast racing series that you and, you mm -hmm. know, Maka and all these other guys did in that era and women. Uh, and when we see the Super League now, my young guys who are just starting into the sport, you know, maybe they're 20, 21, they think the Super League is the first time it's ever been shown. <laughs> and I'm like, let me tell you, this thing actually happened 30 years ago at a very high level as well. And so we were just refining something that was spectacular in the 90s. Yeah. Hats off to Chris McCormack, who, you know, going back to what we had, the Bray Brothers online sports, actually, in 94, um, they did a testing year the year before, but 94, they managed to secure a, a, a big beer company, Tui's in Australia. And they, they Tui's had just come out with a light beer, um, which light meaning less alcohol, not light in terms of calories as we have these days. But And the Tui's Blue series was born. Um, and they basically had secured sponsorship and then decided to find triathlon as the event that they would cut up and make it small and make it for TV. Um, it wasn't, hey, we've got triathlon, now we get sponsors. They were, they were a, a company first that had companies that just wanted to get on TV and figure it out. Um, and so we were a made-for-TV product, first and foremost. And uh, I remember that qualifying series because they invited 15 uh, it was men only that first year. And then there were 10 qualifying spots. And, you know, as a young 21-year-old that was on the verge of breaking through, for me, it was the ultimate goal to try and qualify. And I managed to qualify. And that series of live television, so, you know, we couldn't screw up. I remember people would turn up and if they didn't have the right T-shirt on or the right cap or they turned up late, everyone was getting fined, $200 there, $250 there, if you didn't do things right. And it was high pressure, high stress, and that was my introduction to being a professional triathlete. What a way to start though, Greg. I mean, yeah. imagine, you know, that opportunity. And again, you know, the, the reality was there were probably eight countries in, in that era that really were producing high-level athletes, Australia, New Zealand, United States, Canada, obviously, you know, mm -hmm. Great Britain and a few European 
parts of the world. But boy, the quality of racing. And I love it when I see an old YouTube video clip <laughs> of, you know, you guys, Troy Fiddler and Bevan, you know, and all those guys oh. of that era, the men and the women. It just was such great racing. And I think you now only have to look to see what the French have done, you know, with their Grand Prix mm -hmm. series. Mm -hmm. and that's why, in my estimation, you know, uh, France has replaced the Australia of the 90s in terms of producing another star and another star. I was just in Montreal for the world uh, championships uh -huh. uh, two weeks ago. Mm. And these young French kids, you know, the next bunch of young French kids are coming through. Uh -huh. They're groomed, they're experienced. They did what you guys were doing at 17 and 18. They've been doing it in France, you know, for three or four years on these uh, Grand Prix racing. And they don't look nervous. They look polished. They're ready to win. And they go to world champs and another generation of young French kids are doing what the Aussie kids were doing in the 90s. Couldn't agree more. I've said numerous times, you know, I keep seeing these federations trying to develop these programs and these talent IDs and these develop pathways. And I'm like, just race. Put exactly. On, if we can have great races, and I'm not sure federations should be the ones putting on races, but if you can find companies that are willing to back and put on races, all, all these kids want to do is race and, and have, have fun. And like you said, watching someone like a Cassandra Bogrant, you know, the way she's racing and delivering, you know, it's hard to see her not being, you know, a strong medal contender come Paris. Oh, um, he, he, and one of the issues, you know, I mean, I think you and I probably come from a similar bias. Uh, you know, all of this, this testing and that testing and this whatever, you know, there's one good way to test. Put your ass in a race <laughs> yeah. and let's see if you can deal with, you know, the stress of standing on a beach. Can you run in off the beach? Can you deal with people touching you as you go around that first boy? Yeah. And there, there's a guy who you used to train with uh, many years ago, Jasper Blake, who went on mm -hmm. to win uh, Ironman Canada. He was not a great swimmer, but I remember doing some workouts where we would actually do it in a pool we put three swim boys in a 50 meter pool and make you do these triangles. <laughs> and he had in a pool, in a straight line, in a, your own lane, he might've been the eighth fastest guy over 200 meters, but you put him in that pool where you're climbing over each other like water polo. And he would be the third guy out because his competitive nature, he didn't mind getting mauled. And, and boy, does that not reflect what would happen in a triathlon when 50 men are trying to get to that first swim boy at 200 meters? I don't care what your swim time is in a pool. If you don't like people touching you, yeah. you're maybe not going to necessarily come out of the water in the, in the right place. So I think putting you in racing, see how you deal with stress. How do you deal with the competitive nature of other people around you? It doesn't mean you don't do some baseline fitness testing and, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. I get it. But I think that the more often that you can race, the better that you see your skills evolving and you really see who's cut out for elite racing and who is, you know, a good trainer who can't race. Oh, mate, I couldn't agree more. I, I have two stories on that. I remember, so Javier Gomez and I, uh, you know, longtime friends and uh, Javier, what is he, nine-time, ten-time world champion, depending on 70.3s and Xterras and WTS series, everything else. Anyway, and I remember he was world number one at the time. He'd just won the World Series and we were training in Australia and he had to fly back to Spain to do a swim test, you know, <laughs> for, <laughs> to prove that he should be on the national team. And I'm Former not kidding you. Meter, you know, superstar swimmer in a pool has yeah. to go back. To he was world weekends. number one. 
He was one. No, he just won the world championship, and we were laughing so hard about. it. And he's like, "Yeah, but it's the way it's the way it's done." And um, another another story I have on that is someone like um, Jan Fredino. And I've had Dan Larang, his coach, on the podcast a couple of times. And um, and I asked Dan, you know, when you first took on Jan, what did you think? He's like, basically, he almost didn't take him on because his numbers were so low across the board. Like he didn't have anything that was outstanding. And if anybody listening to this wants to be inspired, <laughs> it's understand the reason why Jan Fredino is not out there sharing all of his numbers and everything, because they haven't been exceptional, but for whatever reason, the guy can produce swim, bike and run on the world's biggest stages for over a decade. And yet he's probably only just scraping in, making the times to make, you know, national teams and that kind of thing because of his, his, um, his engine and stuff. Anyway, going off topic a little bit, but it is, it is fascinating how we look at the sport. Uh, you and I are definitely saying the same thing that, you know, you want to pick the best triathlete in the world, have him race. Um, quite simple. But what I want to do now, because there's plenty I want to get through, um, I want to start with first off just rewinding your clock and just getting to know you a little bit better. And then I kind of want to discuss the book and then I think we go into some more opinions about the sport and everything else. But let's first do this. Let's um, rewind the clock. Tell me, you know, your journey to finding the passion for the sport of triathlon and how did that all start? Well, I think like many people, it was around television uh, and watching those very first, you Mm. know, Hawaii Ironman races I grew up in a town without a stoplight and without a swimming pool. So, you know, wasn't really de- destined to be a multi-sport uh, athlete, um, but I played ice hockey. It was a thing. I'm a goaltender. It was a thing that I was passionate about. If you're a Canadian boy, you're playing hockey, you know, at a relatively young age. And it was a thing that I... You still do, right? Can I interrupt there? You still do play goal. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the very late 50-year-old uh, pucks off the head a couple <laughs> times a week. Okay. Uh, Go on, mate. And, Sorry. <laughs> and so ultimately, uh, it became a reality in Canada, as in many sports. There's a moment when you know you're not going to make pro. I didn't get drafted, and my father sat me down and had the quick conversation. You know, this is going to be a fun recreational thing for you, but you know, you don't need to be thinking about yourself ever turning pro. And the sport of triathlon had literally just started, and I found my calling of, let's say, quasi-leadership, quasi-corolling people. And in this town of 2,000 people, I was able to get a club of almost 100 people training for triathlon. I was the coach. We swam in Lake Erie, which is a one of the five big lakes uh, that surround uh, us here in Ontario, and ultimately started a club that evolved and moved to McMaster University when I was there. And once I got to Mac. I had a 50 meter pool, 400 meter track, world-class, you know, athletes who had come from other sports and triathlon was just taking off. So I had this luxury of these great athletes who were interested in this thing, had no idea how to get started, but they might've been a, a world-class rugby, uh, a sort of water polo player, or they might've run five K's and, and three thousands in high school and they were interested, but they didn't know how to get started. So I literally just was by definition of nobody else knew the sport or cared about coaching. I was at a university and I took on that role. And the second opportunity that really was critical for me, uh, I became the first founding president of the association. So I tried to find race entries. None existed because you couldn't actually call the office and find them. And so one of my professors challenged me and said, look, I'll, I'll give you one of your credits for a, a sport admin class, 
if you write a proposal on how to start a triathlon federation. So I did. And within three months, the federation was my university residence room. When you called the hotline, you got my outgoing telephone number. <laughs> what year was this? Sorry, Barry. What, what year uh, was it? This would have been 1983, uh, like 84. Wow. So early wow. in, in the camp. Yeah. So yeah. when you were calling the office, you're calling my residence room. And I wasn't very bright, but I knew that every sport I had ever watched had, you know, a nice pyramid, a million kids playing soccer or swimming or hockey or gymnastics, whatever. And at the top of the peak were a few elite Olympic athletes. Well, here I was in this sport that had all of these 30 and 40 and 50 year old adults that were joining my association and not one child. It was all 20, 30, 40, 50 year olds doing their first local triathlon, maybe hearing about the Ironman, wanting to go to Penticton, and there was no youth. <clears throat> and I said, this is a serious problem. So while I was working a summer job on an assembly line, I said, you know, I need to create something that's going to help bring in new kids. I'm the president. We've got great growing numbers, but it's all adults. And so the Iron Man existed. And I said, kids of steel. So I, I literally got this idea, created it in my brain, there had been one very small backyard uh, kids triathlon by a family in Leamington, the Naiju family, and I had watched it. It was 11 kids in their neighborhood, and I could envision how there could be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids doing this in pools and little lakes right across the country. So that was my vision, and I, I'm as a president, the internet didn't exist. I'm trying to find a sponsor for my idea. And there was a company called Triathlon Leasing in downtown Toronto. So I got into their boardroom, knew nothing about it. As it turns out, they leased three different products. That was the Tri Leasing. And they, by the end of the hour, I had convinced the vice president that she should be sponsoring my Kids of Steel Triathlon. And she asked me for a number. I gave her a whopping big number, bigger than I probably should have. And she didn't have the authority to write a check for that amount. But she said, uh, what if the other two vice presidents come and watch, uh, you know, your kids of steel race? It didn't exist. It's Monday afternoon. I said, well, there's a race on Friday at McMaster University where I went to school. And I thought she would just sign the check. I was naive. She said, well, we're going to come and watch. So now I get on the go bus from Toronto back to Hamilton. It's an hour and I'm panicking all the way. I now have three vice presidents coming in four days to see a race that only exists in my head. Totally, <laughs> totally, totally true story. So as most campuses have, you know, a summer camp for kids who play hockey or tennis or basketball or volleyball. I went to the head of the program and said, look, on Friday, I need all 300 kids in your summer camp doing their first ever triathlon at one o'clock in the afternoon when these vice presidents show up. And so long before there was Weetabix kids and these other programs around the world and before there was Iron Kids in the U.S., uh, this lady, uh, Judy, showed up with the vice presidents. We're on a campus. And I learned that day what you and I now know, every kid is a triathlete. In the summertime, they ride their bike, they mm -hmm. hop in the pool, they kick a soccer ball, they eat a hot dog, they run a bit, they do it again the next day with their pals. Maybe not in the same order every time, <laughs> but they're a triathlete every day, every summer mm -hmm. when you're a kid. And so she signed a check on the Monday and we rented a, a big van. And within weeks, I called everyone across the country and said, look, I, I'm, I wanna put on a Kids of Steel race in your town Will you get some people 
to, you know, get a pool, get some volunteers, get me kids. And by the end of uh, two years, we had two dozen races, but that very first summer in a little town outside of Kingston, Ontario, the Hollywood family who were in the sport uh, said, look, we have a, a cottage at our lake and we'll be happy to host a race. And their next door neighbor happened to be this 12 year old kid named Simon Whitfield, who <laughs> went with the neighbors to Charbot Lake. And I met him that very first summer. And for the next two or three years, the Whitfields would drive Simon to Leamington and to Ottawa and to Collingwood and to right around the province and across the country. In some cases, kids traveled to Whistler. We put one on at Alta Lake and and so forth. And so these went right across the country, downtown Toronto, shutting down, as you can imagine, a city of two million people to put a kid's triathlon on. But that wow. got everybody started. And so every third weekend, this little caravan of families would show up at the next town and for 45 minutes, they would do a kid's race. And that became this little fun thing. And then families would have picnics after. Uh, but that grew literally from Kristen Sweetland to Simon Whitfield to Kyle Jones to names that you know that, you know, have gone on to the Olympic Games. They have all been at my Kids of Steel races and got their starts. And so of all the things I've done in my life, it's the one thing that I'm most proud of. And literally three weeks ago, Simon Whitfield was back in my town of Caledon to hand out medals to 500 kids. And we now have a three, four, five-year-old age category where the kids have water wings, tricycles. Mom and dad can come in the pool and swim next to them and walk beside them on the bike. And so four-year-olds are getting a Simon Whitfield medal. And, uh, and there are kids right now that are at world championships and they've sent me pictures when they were five and seven and nine doing a local kids of steel triathlon. It was their first exposure. And so for me, it's most important that your first experiences have to be positive. Mm. We have a big toy box that literally, when you get to the finish line, you put your hand in and you take out a toy and it might be a, a car or a basketball or something, <laughs> but you know, besides your medal, you're going to get a little gift and hopefully that just leaves an imprint on you. That was a fun experience. Mommy, I want to go back to do one of those things. Mate, you've given me goosebumps. I love that story. And, and I, first, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for putting that on. Um, it's people like you that are the reason our sport is what it is. So, mate, that's really, really cool. And it's not just the Simon Whitfields and the Kirsten Sweetlands and et cetera. It's how much impact you've had on thousands of young people that are now adults because they got to start a triathlon early. Um, when, when you look at kids are still now, uh, has, has it grown? Has it developed? How's the sponsorship side? Can we, can we do anything to plug, plug sponsors, steer them your way? Do you need that sort of support at the moment? Well, you know what? I'm going to reinvest some more of my gas over the next 20 years of my life. Um, various you know, people in federations uh, probably about eight or 10 years ago decided to change the name to some other things. I've, I've held out and said every race I'm putting on is called Kids of Steel. Yeah. And so I'm going to reinvest my gas and Whitfield, you know, came and handed out medals, et cetera. I mean, when you have a brand that has had a Kyle Jones and an Andrew York and a Sweetland and and a Whitfield and others. I mean, that's a historical thing that you want to continue on. Mm. It really doesn't matter, honestly, what it's called. It's just called let's have fun. But, you know, I'm a little uh, biased, obviously, having ha helped start the program. But it, it, you know, it has a history. And when you have histories, you want to keep those things yeah, going on. I love so it. Yeah. there are events right across the country. And, you know, there's some new people at Triathlon Canada that I'm optimistic will see the history of 
of 30 plus years of those kinds of events. But you're right. My, my excitement is not the Simons because honestly, a Simon Whitfield or a Sweetland, they're going to find their way into a sport. Uh, for me, it's the kid who maybe had no sport that really spoke to them. And suddenly they're never going to be a Greg Bennett or a Laura, uh, you know, but they're going to find something that they can do for fun and for lifestyle. And mm. so that's a philosophy that we've had at all the races. It's important that you make it available and it's not just for the best 12 st studs in your high school, it's for everybody. Mm. You've been a president of the Triathlon Association. You've started the Kids of Steel and kept that going forever. You've also, you know, got, got into coaching and commentary. Tell me how you, you came into those two. Well, the commentary thing is the oddest of all things. Um, it had an A and a B part. The A part was I living in this little small community uh, my mom was raising two kids and basically it was my sister and I for entertainment before we moved into the, the town where there could be playmates. So my mom was a big fan of education and she would make us write little speeches every couple of weeks. And we had to present the, the little speech to her, you know, in our little farmhouse. <laughs> and it was a way of entertaining us in the summertime before Game Boys and, and Internet existed. So. Um, I, I grew to have a craft of public speaking, which never would have known in this little town that would have eventually have had a benefit for me down the road. But the, the actual commentary part, Graham Fraser started, you know, this incredible tri-sport series uh, 30 plus years ago. You raced in it, Welchie, and everybody would have come and done Milton and mm -hmm. some of his other races around, uh, around Canada. And he had a professional DJ who was very good at speaking and had great music and great speakers. And I would stand next to the guy and feed him information. Here comes Paul White. And that is Rick Wells coming down the road here. And, you know, that is uh, Karen Smyers and, and so forth. So this guy's job was really to take my information and use his brilliance of public speaking to get it out over the PA system. And about the third race, he didn't show. And Graham Fraser came and said, look, you got to be the commentary today. And I'm like, dude, I've never done this. I don't even know what a microphone is. And for the next six years, I did every one of his races right across the country. And it was the greatest learning opportunity because you needed to be able, like there was no take, there was no take two, take three. I mean, here comes people out of the water. You better be able to pick out, you know, who is Rick Wells and who is Dan Murray and and so forth. So I had, I did my homework before every race. I, I had information about the athletes. Uh, but what I realized is that, you know, the average person standing there really doesn't care what a 29, 30, 10 K split is. Like it's a number that doesn't really mean a lot unless mm. you are an incredible athlete who can appreciate what a 250 kilometer is. But what people did love were the stories about the athlete, about their family, about the charity they were racing for, about the age group guy who lost 45 pounds and so forth. And so when you have two or three or and a half Ironman, seven hours to have to fill, it became story time for me. And so it was the wonderful thing that I became very good at, that I enjoyed the most was making those people out there, not just the pros, but the age groupers who were still in the fourth and fifth and sixth hour and a half Ironman uh, to tell their stories. And mm -hmm. I made a commitment that I would never leave the finishing line until the last person crossed the line. And I have had races, marathons, where at eight and a half hours, the PA system has been taken down and I'm standing with the family, the husband and wife and the kids waiting for the mom or the dad or whoever <laughs> cross the line because their journey is actually more inspiring than some guy who runs a 211 marathon, you know? So it just became, you know what, I, I have this little opportunity to make someone feel good for their 
15, 20, 30 seconds as they're coming across the line. And I watched, you know, iconic people like Steve King out in Penticton, who is in my mind, still the greatest, you know, race commentary mm. guy at a finishing line ever. Uh, and so uh, I just said, look, you know, if these athletes can train that hard, I can make that kind of an effort on race day to come prepared to come and try to entertain. And long before there were computer chips that let you know where people were at on the course, I had to use my coaching knowledge to say, look, I know that Greg's going to be 30 seconds back out of the water, but then he's going to bike through these guys. And I'm, I'm predicting in about a minute and a half, we're going to see Greg Bennett coming, you know, into the transition zone because I'm standing there with no technology other than entertaining 300 and 400 people who are waiting for you to come off the bike in Milton or whatever. So I used my knowledge of that should take Greg about 57 minutes to do that. And he left 56 minutes ago, we should be seeing him coming in. And so I had, you know, over the years, incredible capacity. And I would talk to you before the race and say, you know, are you on your A game today, Greg? Or are you just using this as a, as a training day? So I would be able to kind of predict if you're on your A game, that's a 57 minute bike split. You should be coming in here momentarily. So that was my way of getting into commentary. The 92 worlds that Graham hosted in Muskoka, still one of my favorite memories, you know, Simon Lessing coming in, McKilly Jones coming mm-hmm. in. I had an athlete that won the bronze medal in the juniors. Uh, and so it was, it was so incredible to see these athletes, you know, at live, like this was not just like age group stuff in Ontario. This was now the world championships and Les McDonald was impressed enough after those 92 worlds that, you know, opportunities with the ITU started to pop up. And in those early days at ITU, they would send a crew to the race, get all the pitchers bring all the pitchers back to Vancouver, mm-hmm. edit a show. And every, I would, uh, nine or 10 times, uh, uh, win a summer, I would fly out on a red eye, uh, to Vancouver, do the show and fly back the same day. So, you know, that's 10 hours of flying to do a one hour show. I did that one time actually in Vancouver with the yeah. voiceover. It's way harder to do. Vo- I don't like voiceover. What a terrible, I, terrible way to I, commentate. I, <laughs> You can try to be too cool, oh, right? Like it's awful. I've seen guys do uh, post stuff, and they want to make themselves look intelligent. Like, you know, if he looks back, he might be dehydrated. Well, you know, the guy's going to pass out in about another five hundred meters down the road because you already know the outcome of the race. So, I always made a commitment on those shows. Yeah. Whatever I felt going in before the race would start, I was going to honor. You know, if I thought that you know, whatever, uh, Hunter Kemper was looking great going in, then I'm not going to suddenly, you know, when the, when this tape show ha- happens, pretend that I don't think Hunter's going to have a great day. I thought he was going in. So mm-hmm. I would try to honor that. But like, if you know, a crash is coming, you know, you know, a crash is coming. It's, it's damn hard on a post show not to show some kind of like, you know, Hey, they're wobbling around out there in that pack or whatever. No, yeah. It's, it's- live you're just responding as it happens live. It really is just, it loses that, you can commentate it at about a seven out of 10, but you can't get to the 10, no matter how hard you try, because you just lose that little bit of emotional difference. And I love how you, you said, you know, you stay there till the very, very end. And, you know, everybody's got a story. One thing I've, since starting this podcast is realized that everybody in the world has a story. Everybody has a journey, right? And, and it's fascinating to have these weekly conversations because, it's not just about the very, very best in the world. Like, you know, I I can go to the park and the guy next to me is pushing his kid on the swing and I'm pushing my kid on the swing. And 
I've, I've started to really just enjoy getting to know everybody's backstory and their journeys because it really is fascinating. So I, I kind of, when you said, oh, you know, I wait eight hours for the end of the marathon because that person has a story and it can be inspiring. I, I couldn't agree more. So tell me, you know, the coaching part, was that always sort of there or thereabouts from sort of 83 onwards, you know, 82 onwards? Were you always just keeping your hand in coaching? Well, it was, and I was incredibly blessed. McMaster University in Hamilton, one of the leading uh, universities in the world when it came to applied uh, physiology. So in my graduate research that I eventually did, you know, we were doing muscle biopsies where we were radioactively tagging blood uh, cells to look at blood volume. So I did published research before anything else has come out around the world. And, you know, this isn't kind of blowing smoke up my bum. I mean, my tapering and peaking research, if you go back and look in, you know, 1987, 88, in the Journal of Applied Physiology, when I started down that topic of like, what do you do to taper? Like, what do you do? You've trained for eight years for the Olympics or for four years to get ready for the Ironman or whatever the case may be. And I was watching athletes blow five and six years of hard work in the last one to three weeks of their training because they did the wrong things, in my estimation, leading in to their final event, to the, to the Olympics, to the world championships, to the high school swim champs, whatever the case may be. Mm. So I started to ask all these coaches, you know, what, what, what is a taper? What do you do? And there were not any real answers. And then when I would ask them for like some background, there was no research. I looked, if you look prior to 86, there was virtually, there were theoretical models of getting rid of fatigue, but nothing about, well, what should you do? So I was able to get uh, published research that was paid for by Sport Canada. That's our, our national funding agency for high performance in the country. They were interested in, well, what should they be doing? And so they paid for two years of me being able to pay a dozen athletes to literally have to just do what I asked them to do for two years. They could not go off and train and do other things. They had to follow the protocols that I had set out for them. And ultimately, not to get boring with statistics, but the very best model is if you are comparing yourself to yourself. Mm -hmm. So they were on all three of my tapers. And the first taper, amazingly, had very good results. And this is what I call the zero taper or I am sick taper. It's happened to every person you know. They get sick. They mm -hmm. said, if I hadn't already got an airline ticket to go to that race or I hadn't already had some commitments, I wouldn't have shown up. I had a week of virtually bedridden and I, I wasn't able to do anything. It's going to be a terrible day. They go out and they have a very, very good race. Mm -hmm. And they go, I don't know where the hell that came from. Well, my research showed where it came from. They were able to get rid of all of this massive fatigue out of their body. And now they're going in very rested. Now, it's not optimal because you've got fibers that haven't done much for five or six days. And psychologically, it's not great. But physiologically, they were able to get rid of fatigue. And mm -hmm. so the zero taper actually showed some great results. So then the next taper was the one that most of the coaches in the 80s, when I talked to swimmers and runners and other sports, where they had this kind of staggered thing over six or seven or eight days, and it was, you know, 10 or 15% less per day till they got close to race mm -hmm. day, and mm -hmm. then they went in. And they had even better results because at least you were doing physical activity, but you hadn't done much. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the final taper, which ended up being the one that now people have modified in many ways, and I take great pride in, in just seeing articles and stories, et cetera. But if you do the derivation, it goes back to McMaster University, uh, Dr. McDougall, Dr. Sale, Barry Shepley, 
Dr. Mark Tarnopolsky, my, my team of researchers, uh, and the two years of research that I put in. And this high intensity thing was race pace, no faster. And that's where people get it wrong. As they're resting, they're feeling better and better, and they want to go faster and faster in that last week. Well, you're now causing muscle damage. So you had to do just enough fast stuff to keep your fast twitch fibers alive and activated and blood volume kind of cruising along and that feel for the water or the feel on the track. Uh, but so small work that you got rid of the fatigue. And on race day, you end up having these great results. So now the art of what people have done in the last 20 plus years is modified. Okay, what if we do a little more of this, a little less of that? And if your fiber type is this or your age is that, as an example, my older athletes eat a longer taper than my younger athletes because mm. they're it's longer to get fatigue out of their body. And if they're doing you know something that's more intense, they need to have a little bit of intensity in that last week. So that stuff just led into the coaching for me. And so I had a university that allowed me to use athletes as human guinea pigs. I paid them. They saw performance enhancement. I was one of the few, you know, coaches in the era. There certainly were coaches, the, you know, the Cole Stewart's and the, the Sutton's and all these people around the world, the Hellemans and, you know, all these great people that were out there. Uh, the French had their guys and so forth, but there weren't many. And I just happened to be lucky enough to be coming along in the 80s and in the 90s. And so for a decade from 91 to 2001, I was uh, the national coach before Lance uh, Watson took over. And so it was a great opportunity in this heyday of these Canadian athletes, you know, the Heather Fjords, the Lisa Bentleys coming along, eventually the Simon uh, Whitfields, you know, were in there and, and others that were coming through that era. So I was just lucky to be in an era of phenomenal athletes, of huge growth, of Canada having a larger role then than we have now, uh, just because, you know, the Portugal's and Italy's and Spain's that weren't a factor in the 80s and 90s are now generating, you know, world-class athletes on, on a regular basis. But uh, I was lucky to be there. And I literally went to the Olympics as an unpaid volunteer coach in 2000. In fact, you know, my wife has a very large bill for the year I had to live in Victoria to get the national center rolling uh, that she paid the bills back in Ontario while I was living in residence, you know, with 18 year old kids uh, wondering why their grandfather was back in residence at the University of Victoria getting ready for the Olympic Games. <laughs> I love that story. I, um, the physiology part and the tapering is a fascinating conversation that we could make this whole podcast about. Um, it's something that took me a long, long time to really know who I was as an athlete. Um, and, and that was more by trial and error. It wasn't working with great physiologists like we have access to these days or yourself, you know, or Dr. Dan Plews and these kind of people. Sure. It was kind of a little bit trial and error, but I remember, you know, for a consistent type tapering, it always depended on the kind of volume and where I was in fitness and everything else. But once I knew I was fit, you know, I, I loved sort of the 10 day taper was what fell into both my psycholo psychological performance and my physiological. And, um, and a bit like you said, it was like, you know, I'd go 75% for three days, 50% for three days, 25% and then, and then go into the race. Um, and then hitting certain markers in terms of intensity. But I also had times where through my anxiety was probably a little bit high. And so I would taper longer out. And I remember even saying a couple of times to Laura, I'm like, you know, I'm feeling the pressure going into Dallas where I, I, it's not a, it's, I have to win, you know, and that, that feeling is the greatest feeling in the world when, when you have to win to win a series or whatever it was. And, 
And I'd say to her, you know, three weeks out, I need you to take over the program. Athletes are terrible at, you know, oh. really terrible. You know, and you can see Lionel, you know, his improvement each time he's honestly listened to or worked with a coach. I mean, yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter how good you are. You, you need to, and you know, Simon did that his whole career. He made sure that he was very you know, good at that. Filial or, yeah. or uh, Lance, myself, others over the time, he, you know, he always had his finger involved in the pie. Yeah. And I think that a great athlete has to. Uh, but you also need somebody who can be a little less emotional and say, look, dude, you need a recovery day, like going and drilling yourself harder because today was a crap day. Uh, isn't what you need. You need a lighter day tomorrow, that yeah. kind of thing. Okay. I want to shift gear a little bit here. Well, still staying on your, on your past, but I want you to, I'm putting you on the spot here, so I haven't given you any time to consider this, but if you look back at the last well, 40 years, pretty much in the sport, what's been the biggest high for you? Has there been one moment or several moments? What, is, what has been the high for you? Wow, that, that's, that's a great question. I would say one of the highs for me was middle of September of 2000, not Simon winning the race, but uh, at Canada House uh, about 13 hours after he crossed the line in, uh, in front of the Opera House, we were at this massive party. Blue Rodeo was playing and <laughs> 2,000 Canadians were there to wait for Simon to come into the hall. And within a short window of time, maybe 15 minutes after he came in, he came over and put his gold medal around my wife's neck. And I, I, I'm tearing up right now thinking about it. Um, you know, just saying, look, part of this medal is yours to Karen. And, you know, it is, he did the same thing to you in the grandstands six mm. hours before. Mm. He realized that that gold medal mm. was a uh, hundred people uh, who had contributed as training partners, as coaches, as sponsors, his parents, uh, of Lance, of so many people. Mm. But he did not forget those people in his moment of joy. I mean, the greatest moment of his life, he is taking a minute to find my wife in a crowd and put this, this medal around her neck. So more for me than him crossing the line and more for the psychotic moments you can only imagine that happened in Sydney uh, was just this personal moment of him remembering that the year that I was in Victoria, that my wife was paying the bills, uh, that, that was only allowed to occur because of the Shapley teamwork. And he went over and recognized my wife. And that meant more to me than him crossing the line with the medal. Isn't that beautiful? It, it's like a... You know, if you and I both shared those kind of memories together and, and I've even mm -hmm. been asked that kind of thing, you know, career highlights and people are always a little bit surprised when I say, you know, my, my best mate at the time, you know, my training partner for the months leading into the games and we'd known each other for, you know, whatever, 10 years previous and trained together. And I, um, and he, as you mentioned, you know, he came over and put the, the medal around my neck and, and that, and said, this is yours. And that was like a, those moments even though, like you said, it wasn't us crossing the line, it wasn't our victory in the sense of us getting the accolades right there and then, but to be a part of something that was uniquely special to the sport, it was the first time ever, we, we you know, it, it was on at the Olympic Games. For me, it was almost an emotional release because I'd gone through the whole court cases and being left off the Australian team and then went, flew to Canada to help Simon prepare and, and it was all this kind of like, okay... <laughs> Um, so it was a very special so moment. Awesome. You were so awesome on that whole experience. You know, I mean, you don't blow your own horn. I personally would have had you on that Olympic team. Uh, but I, I feel with humongous certainty that Simon Whitfield 
likely does not win that gold medal if Greg Bennett is not living in Victoria, is not a daily training partner to push him to the level, you know, that he needed to be pushed because when he and I sat down in 98 and I asked him what he needed, I thought he was going to say, I need cash. I'm broke. I'm driving a car with no back window and no oil in the, you know, in the brake uh, pads. But he said, I needed training partners. And, you know, how could you not have had the greatest training partner in the months leading up than Greg Bennett, who has won on the Sydney course, who has learned how to do these things, who's older, who's had maturity, you know, all those things. And for you to come and contribute to his ultimate victory and then to be in the grandstands to me is one of the incredible stories of sport. Obviously Simon will, will never forget it, but those of us who were close enough to the sport in that era, you know, to know how it must've felt for you to not be out there knowing I've beaten every one of these guys dozens of times. And now the guy who I've literally helped win uh, you know, this race is recognizing me and, and acknowledging me and your role. I mean, your role was huge. And you may not remember this, but I put you on the line. Uh, we were in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. I'm emceeing a, 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 a athlete panel before the big Cornerbrook World Cup race. And I, I asked the question to you and I said, Greg Bennett, it's uh, four weeks from now because it was four weeks to the Olympics. Um who are you voting for? You know, who, who are you cheering for the Aussies or this kid Whitfield who you've been training with for the last four months? And you said, mate above country, man. And <laughs> I looked over at the Aussie Federation who weren't so thrilled with your response, <laughs> but I went right on dude, you know, like you and Simon had formed this bond and anybody who's been to war or been to battle or been through disease, you know, that the people who you went to battle with, there is a bond that you can never break. And you and Simon had that bond and for you to be there. And I'm pretty sure I, I could get this wrong, but I think your dad was sitting in the grandstands with you as well mm. when Simon came up, you know, so for your whole family to know that contribution that you made to that gold medal uh, was special. Oh, Barry, that was very, very kind. Yeah. You didn't pay me for that either. That's just an unsolicited no. uh, memory. And, and it was incredible. Now you got me choked up now. It was great memories. I, um, I actually remember that in Cornerbrook where, when you asked that and, and, and I remember even looking over at the Aussies there. I remember that. I remember that clearly. And I was like, yeah, no, mateship first, mateship before yeah. country. And, yeah. uh, and I think everybody was a bit taken aback by that, but I, I'd agree with it to this day. I wouldn't change a thing. I think countries is just a, you know, anyway, we don't need to get into details on that, but I, I, it really fantastic memories. And I think the celebration and the person that Simon is and was, um, during that time and the way it affected us all was a very, very special time. Um, okay. So we've done the highs. Is there a low moment in that sort of 30, 40 years that stands out to you that was a bit of a struggle or, you know, that you were able to learn from and grow from? Like life, there's going to be these, you know, kind of big ups and big downs and lots of kind of borings in between. A couple of them would be, you know, feeling like you had not um, optimized uh, an opportunity for an athlete, you know, where mm. they you either didn't uh, maybe the training program or the, I wasn't able to come through with some sponsorships or I couldn't get them into an event that I was hoping for. Uh, and I know for me, the clock is the most important thing. It's ticking every day. The mm. career of an elite athlete is, you know, even if you're, you know, crowy and you make it into the 40s, it's still a relatively short block of time. And so for me, if I screwed up something on an athlete's program or I, I pushed them too hard and they, you know, came down with an injury, 
that was, I, I took it massively personal because yes, I learned something from that. And yes, maybe the next athlete won't get pushed as hard or as many kilometers or whatever the case may be. But, you know, letting them down was a, a uneasy feeling. And mm-hmm. so that was a tough one. And also the second part, uh, in a couple of cases saying to an athlete, look, you really don't have it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a hard feeling because mm-hmm. I, I love blowing, you know, energy into people's dreams. Um, but I also think there's an important element at a certain moment as a coach to say, look, I think going back to school is probably a good career opportunity for you because, you know, your VO2 max is 51 mils, you know, your hundred meter time in the pool is 146. Um, you, you know, it, honestly, you're going to be a, an average age grouper and to put more, you know, to go on the credit card for another airline ticket to another town, to another race. Um, at the very least, I owe it to you to say, look, if you do this, do this knowing that this is not going to lead to a 20 year career, you know, like Javier Gomez or whatever. And you, you may dream, but my dad had that same conversation with me that at 15, I was not going to be a goaltender in the NHL. And it was a painful few days, but you know, you have to hear reality sometimes. So Mm. I try in those cases to customize an opportunity for someone. And in some cases I've pushed them into becoming an official in some cases, a race director. In some cases, uh, one guy I can tell you right now is one of the half dozen greatest agents in the world who Mm. is one of my athletes. Uh, and he, he, he's the agent for Andre de Grasse, you know, the phenomenal, uh, hundred meter runner for Canada and Christine Sinclair, who's one of the greatest soccer uh, players in the world, female soccer players. He, he's doing phenomenal things as an agent and it was not going to happen, you know, as an elite athlete. So it's, it's a bad feeling when you sit down and just say, look, I've given you a couple of years and I can see your athletic abilities, pretty average and your ability to hurt yourself is below average. Um, and yet you're dreaming about being an elite athlete and it's, it's not going to happen. So I have those conversations. I first give them a couple of years just for me to test out, to see whether they just need some more coaching and more opportunities and a couple more races. But that's always for me, a low feeling of saying to somebody like that dream you have, mm, that's not going to happen. Yeah. It's a difficult conversation, but for some that don't get it, has to be had. Like you always hope Mm -hmm. that the individual is going to recognize perhaps that they've got some talent, but it's just not this thing that they're doing, right? I mean, it's actually the amount of conversations I've had on this show and with some of the greatest coaches in the world like yourself, and they wanted to be the world's greatest cyclists or triathletes, you know, Cliff English, Joel Filiol, uh, Dr. Dan Plews. Each and every one of them said, my goal was to become a professional triathlete or cyclist in Cliff English's case. But then they've gone on to become some of the world's greatest coaches and physiologists. And, and But it, it took that either somebody kind of just nudging them a little bit, like you're, you said, and it's not. it doesn't feel good to have to give somebody that kind of, uh, look, you can keep going if you want, but I'd, I'd suggest it's, it's not an easy conversation. And I get it that those are low points. Now, look, we've gone a fair way into this show and I, I wanted to get to your book, Chasing Greatness. Quick mini break just to remind you to go check out any question and you can go find Barry Shepley on there and ask him any follow-up questions you have to this podcast.
on this book, Chasing Greatness, first and foremost, why the book? Uh, it must have been a lot of work, um, but, but why did you start it? And tell me about the experience of writing it. Wow. You know, I, I am not a writer. I'm a storyteller. So it was, <laughs> was challenging. It, it started probably 15 years ago on airplanes when you'd have those 13 hours coming back from, you know, <laughs> Beijing or Ishigaki or one of our you know, races that you were at all around the world. Uh, I wanted to capture these moments before they kind of left me. And so one of the things that I started in Sydney and have done at every single Olympics, you know, every four years is I would do a daily newsletter back to tens of thousands of people eventually that uh, what, what did I see that day? I was so lucky to be at the Olympic games every four years that I wanted people who would never get that opportunity to feel what it was like to be sitting in the cafeteria. And there's Haley Gabriel Selassie literally sitting next to me with the Ethiopians having their breakfast, you know, and then look over and see <laughs> Serena Williams and Venus Williams, you know, signing autographs because they were rock stars, even amongst the Olympic rock stars. So I shared that every four years, I had all of these notes and memories and my wife and others would continue to say, you know what, you should put these ideas into a book. Uh, and so what I wanted to come out of the book was how an average person that came from a town of 2000 people without a swimming pool, without a Tim Hortons for those around the world, it's, you know, our coffee shop of Canada, um, how you could become lucky by applying daily hard work, by taking up every single opportunity that stood in front of it. And Les McDonald said to me 30 some years ago, you have to be where sport is. You can't be sitting in an office talking about it. You have to be in the hub of where it happens. And I moved to his house in North Vancouver to learn at the foot of the legend. And every morning we would get up to 40 feet of fax paper that had come out of, you know, when it was back, that big wax long paper came out of the fax machine from Australia and Europe and whatever. And he would explain to me what's happening over here and there and so forth. Mm. So I had all of these behind the scenes memories and stories, you know, and, and Les is gone. Les can't share that story any longer. And so I felt, you know what, at, at this point in my career, there's an opportunity to share stories that are about sport, about commentary, uh, about behind the scenes things that go on that nobody sees, because often you just want to, you know, show the best of what's come out on the other side, but you didn't see uh, literally at one of the Olympic games with 60 seconds to go, our, our comms were not working. And we had to run into another room that turned out not to have a computer with any of the timing the things. And all of my notes, my cheat notes were all taped on that table in the other room. And now I have to do the Athens Olympics, which you were in. Mm -hmm. And my only savior was Andy Potts is coming out of the water first. So, <laughs> you know, so I knew all of those years of watching you guys race, who should be doing it. Thank God Andy didn't have a bad day and come out ninth because I'm predicting, you know, Andy's kind of be coming out of the water. So the book are the hardest single thing was the editor leaving some great stories on the floor. Mm. That is my biggest tears mm. because there were spectacular stories. And she just said that great story doesn't fit into these 18 chapters. And so that was painful. Uh, but when you hire someone who's a professional, you know, whether it's a swim coach or the guy in the mechanic for your car, you have to trust that they you've hired them because they know something better than you do. So chasing greatness literally was me chasing greatness, but it was mostly me helping people chase their own greatness. And 
you know, in there is a story of a young 19 year old kid who is going to be one of the best 110 meter hurdlers in the world. And uh, an accident uh, it put him into being paralyzed and he could have been frustrated and angry at the world. Here I am 20. I'm now not going to be going to the Olympics, uh, you know, on the hurdles and him spending time with me in Tucson, Arizona for the better part of the last five or six years now in arm crank, looking at the Paralympic games and cranking to the top of Mount Lemon, this epic 26 mile mountain that I use for training on a weekly basis in Arizona and watching this young guy laying on his back eight inches above the ground with an arm crank doing 200 watts with his arms for four hours, you know, up a mountain mm-hmm. and not being angry at the world. So there's, there's a story in there that I think people will relate to, whether they're a sports person. Not once do I talk about watts or heart rate or lactate or any of that stuff. I could care less and most readers mm-hmm. could care less. But, but, you know, hearing a story about how this 70-year-old guy who I coach who had cancer, who didn't know how to swim, wins the Hawaii Ironman. It was a five-year project. Uh, and becomes, you know, one of the few people ever to break 12 hours in the Hawaii Ironman you know, on a hot day and we're getting ready as we speak. I was with him yesterday and he's going back in 2023 to try to set the world record in the men's 75 and over, you know, so to spend time with these people Mm. who are 70 and have had, you know, challenges in their life and diseases to overcome. And how do we set the positive mindset, you know, at 60 and 70, as well as the 20 year old Simon Whitfield, who, you know, is getting his ass kicked in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland for three or four years uh, before you guys put the magic together, you know, in 2000. So uh, hopefully Chasing Greatness inspires someone to get finish that song they've been thinking about, finish that cabin that they've been looking at on that empty property on their island. Uh, you know, and in my case, the book was literally, it was written in three two week blocks, ultimately. Uh, during the pandemic, every time I came back to Canada, I had to go into the basement for two weeks by myself, <laughs> literally. So my wife, who'd been bugging the shit out of me to get this book done, said, look, there's food at the top of the stairs. I'll leave some more in eight hours. Start writing. I couldn't leave the building. And so in six weeks, uh, over 18 months uh, of pandemic, I wrote the book. Uh, and now it's, you know, that scary part of, OK, well, you've written that sucker will anyone care? Will anyone be moved by even one story? Uh, so for me, that's now the scary part, um, because there's a lot of, you know, personal, emotional things of 40 years, people that inspired me and hopefully that they will inspire, you know, uh, a, a reader to just say, wow, that was, that was a cool story. I mean, this guy is, was no great athlete, never made the NHL. Couldn't, you know, couldn't fin- I did an iron band, but, uh, you know, I had 80 year old ladies passing me. Um, but, but my, my passion is helping other people, whatever that might be, you know, and it's in sport, but it's not just sport. We've helped people with starting their businesses and it's the same thing. You know, mm. you've got to have that sacrifice. You've got to have the dream. You've got to make some mistakes. You've got to stick to it when all the setbacks are happening. And, you know, we just happen to be lucky enough to watch the Lionel Sanders and the Jan Ferdinos and these incredible athletes, you know, the Annie Haugs, you know, we've saw their parts of their career when they weren't ripping it up. Mm. And so to watch them, you know, come through and win world titles. You just know what those people are made of. Mm-hmm. Well, first and foremost, mate, huge congrats. Um, writing a book is an incredible process to go through. Um, and I wouldn't 
be stressed or anxious about how people are going to enjoy this. Uh, you as a human being just bring so much authenticity and um, vulnerability. You're happy to share and there's a real strength in character there. I think the book is absolutely phenomenal. Where do people get it? It's, it's all in bookstores everywhere, right? Well, when you're a self-published guy, you're lucky if your grandmother has it in her, uh, <laughs> in her cooking place. So the, the easiest place for most people will be Amazon. So if they yeah. you know, go to Barry Shepley and Chasing Greatness, uh, they'll be able to get it. I'll put links in here so people can just grab it up from the podcast. I've had people you know, who have uh, been, been waiting for it for a long time. And so you know, the fun part is you know, for you and I, we've been around the world. I mean, New Zealand and Australia and UK and Europe and Asia. Uh, I tell one story, which, you know, I'll just kind of finish on this part related to the book, but I finished doing the Sato uh, World Championships in the 90s, uh, announcing it. And uh, we go to this party, as you know, the Japanese love their big parties and, and very, you know, fantastic food and all kinds of speeches and so forth. And there was a guy, a Japanese guy that was staring at me for a very long time, uncomfortably staring at me. And I said to my wife, there's something weird. That guy has not stopped looking at me. Wherever I move in the room, he's staring at me. It's feeling uncomfortable. So uh, I went up to my translator and said, like, who is that guy? And can you find out what is up? So he comes back, says, would you mind posing for a picture with him? I said, sure. So I pose for a picture and I find out the greatest story. So as you know, all those years of ITU races and all the all the commentary, et cetera. Well, this guy's job was to take the ITU show that I just finished. Uh, he spoke Japanese and English, translate it, and then he had to do Japanese Barry Shepley, not his own show. <laughs> he had to basically do what my co- wife calls Barryisms, you know, which are not in the English language, no matter what English language you speak. Yeah. Uh, and this poor bugger for eight years had to do nine, 10, 12 shows a year just saying what I had said instead of being given the privilege of just doing whatever he saw on the screen and, and redo the Japanese commentary. So I have a picture with the Japanese Barry and uh, it's still one of the bizarrest things in my life that this poor dude had to go into some little basement and like write all this crap down and then regurgitate it in Japanese with the same kind of, you know, I'm sure there were many things that didn't translate very well in the Japanese. So that's great. And he had to get a photo with you. I think that's brilliant. Hey, um, Audiobook. Are you going to do an audiobook? Because I, I listen to audiobooks every single morning when I run. I'm, I, I go through a book every few days these days at two, two to three times the speed. Uh, I'm not sure how your voice will go at two to three times the speed, but are you going to do an audiobook for me? You know what? I have probably been asked that question 20 times. And I, I have to, the short answer is if there's an interest, I would love to do that because that's really the medium that I feel most comfortable do with. Do it because these stories with your tone as well, I, I mean, I can get it through reading and I can hear your voice kind of thing, but to actually have you speaking to me is, um, oh, you got to do it. Well, you're not, you're not the first. So I, I think I'm going to get through this first couple of weeks. Uh, and even <laughs> You know, people like Andre DeGrasse and others have donated like signed spikes and soccer jerseys and Simon Whitfield yeah. you know, pictures to say if you, you know, if you buy the book in the first couple of weeks, uh, you literally we're going to draw prizes for these incredible gifts that uh, wonderful athletes who said, look, I know how hard it is to sell a book when you're not, you know, Michelle Obama or, you know, whatever, uh, somebody famous and you don't have a big monster marketing uh, campaign behind you. So, you know, my life's always been put your head down, do the grind. And uh, so I'm not afraid of that. Um, but, you know, it's, I've, I've given myself some good hard work ahead and, and getting on incredible podcasts like yours. 
hopefully somebody will be inspired because there's some really incredible stories that you will like you will not believe like yeah. you, i won't tell the story but you gotta understand you have to go read the beijing chapter of the olympics because if somebody told me this story at a dinner party i would say that guy is full of bull and <laughs> and i can verify that everything i'm telling you about that particular story happened uh we've got the pictures that it happened we know that it happened but like you have to go read the beijing chapter and see what happened to my wife and i at the olympics to say, my God, that that guy's had some crazy things happen in this What life. a lovely tease. All right, everybody, you know what you got to go do. Go buy the book, support Barry, put his wife at ease, make sure that everybody go reads it, and then you can also find out what happened in Beijing. I actually just want to finish the show with an area on opinions. Um, so this is new to the show. I haven't done this before, but it's really just an area I want to – for you – and I, we have strong opinions and been around long enough that I think our opinions should matter. So, okay. Top three triathlon coaches of all time. John Hellemans mm. would be one of those guys. Uh, extremely hard pressed to not see Brett Sutton as one of the all-time greatest. Boy, number three. I mean, I could put about six of those guys into <laughs> number three, which would include, you know, Joel Filial for sure in there would include, you know, Dan, who's done this brilliant work mm-hmm. with, uh, with Jan and Annie and the gang. Mm-hmm. So those, those names would hop out and that is zero disrespect to the incredible <laughs> people, you know, the of Ian course. O'Brien and all those guys that are out there who all hate my face. Uh, and I don't say their names, but you know, what, what's amazing about Hellemans and those guys, you know, is they had no mentors. Mm. Um, that, that was my problem. I had no mentor. Every mistake I made, I went, shit, I wish there would have been somebody I could have talked to. <laughs> the new generation, you know, can look at the stuff the old guys did. But, you know, when the Cole Stewart's and those guys were doing stuff, they had to make mistakes mm-hmm. and learn from it and improve upon it for the future. So um, kudos to the old school guys who got it done. And obviously these new, you know, Norwegian coaches and so forth, they, they've just taken science to a whole new level. Mm, great answer. Great answer. And I think you, you hit a lot of great names there. Um, all right, I'm going to put you on the spot again. Greatest all-time triathlete, male and a female, one of each. Can you do that? Are you feeling comfortable uh, enough to put one out? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I have to say Ali Brownlee mm-hmm. um, on the men's side. Mm-hmm. And the, only, the Ali Brownlee's ultimate greatness will I I'm fearful never be fully realized because of some injuries. Mm-hmm. But I, I believe that if Ali Brownlee, you know, had not had a few of his injuries with, with his incredible tenacity, like I, I literally were, I was at races where the dude should not have done. He came back, he hadn't raced for three months. He was injured and he comes back, you know, mm-hmm. and wins the race. I think one of them in my memory was in Kitzbühel, Austria. Uh, as an example. And, and he did it in so many different ways. He was such a brilliant runner that he could have just relied on his run. Mm. But no, he, he was tenacious on the bike. Like people would say, why the hell is a guy pulling 32 other people on the bike? And I can remember one of, one of the memories for me was in Leeds where he and Johnny, Johnny was prepared to like sit up and let the pack catch them. They were 15, 20 meters behind. And I knew in, in Ali's case, if we can just get into the little technical section in downtown Leeds, because he had came from a swim that was outside mm-hmm. of town about nine miles. And he's got 20 guys that are putting 450 watts, 500 watts coming after him. And he's pulling his brother and Johnny's looking behind going, oh Lord God, they're right there, they're coming. No, 
Alley would not let up. They got through the into the technical section, came out with a minute lead off the bike, and the two of them, you know, running past a 65-foot-tall Alley Johnny poster on the side of some big monster building in Leeds, you know, to a monster crowd in your town. Like, Lord God, you know, you back that up with the win at the Olympic Games when to, to even make the Olympics is incredible. To have the Olympics in your own country, insanely lucky. And then to be 1-3, you and your brother at the finishing line. I mean, it was just such a remarkable career to watch. The way he did it, um, you know, the few times he moved to long distance, uh, he was there. So uh, there, there are 10 other names I could put in there for various no, reasons. but don't, don't, don't. Let's, let's stay with the one because I, I'll support you a little bit on that in the sense that um, you mentioned Ali and Kitzbühel. And I remember in, what year was it? I think it was 2011. And uh, I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll maybe give the Olympics one more go, you know, and I'm 39, almost 40. And uh, I had to go, I went and did Madrid and Kitzbühel World Series races just to get some points. I hadn't been doing it. I've been focused on the US non-drafting series. And I went to Madrid, got absolutely hammered. It was like, that's a whole nother story, but I got the time of the race wrong and ended up being half asleep for the whole race. Anyway, went off to Kitzbühel a couple of weeks later had a great swim, came out of the water, sort of top 10. Ali was there and on the bike and I'm charging the bike and Ali's abusing everybody. So I throw some abuse back at him because I didn't want to take it. You know, I hadn't really raced the guy. I, I was pretty foreign to it. But And then on the final about a lap and a half to go, he gets away with six others or whatever on the bike leg. And I'm like, what? And he just kept dropping bombs on the bike. He just never let up. And I was like, wow. And my ego was a little bit like, hang on, I'm the Uber biker. Who's this guy? <laughs> you know. And then not only then did he get off, he then went and dropped the fastest run split by over a minute from yeah. the next run split. And I went back to the hotel <laughs> and I said to Laura, it's over. <laughs> I said, it was the first time in my life. By that stage, I'd had 20 years as a professional triathlete. And it was the first time in my life. I remember saying it to Laura, I can't beat that guy. And it was that realism that was like, whoa. I, it didn't matter if it was Lessing, McCormack, anybody else, anybody else. Even if they were better on that day or whatever, I always felt like I still could beat them. You know, there was a way I could beat them. And I just said, I don't know how to beat that guy. He did what the best of you guys did. He was dedicated, he, like, you know, unbalanced dedicated. And, yeah. and I've had this argument with people, you know, you, you need to be more balanced. No, you can't. Honest to God, if you want to be great at yeah. a piano or at being a concert, whatever, or an elite triathlete, there's a period of your time of your life that you are not going to be able to be balanced and, and do all the things that a normal balanced person does. You just can't. You've got to either save the energy for recovery or put another hour into training or deal with your sponsors. And, you know, and that's, I talk about it in the book. I'm I, like, when you think of how many times Javier Gomez and Ali Brownlee, as an example, and, you know, Helen Jenkins and part of her era uh, would have to go to do another press conference in another town well, the other, you know, 110 athletes are in the room with their feet up waiting for tomorrow's race. Mm. I mean, they had to do all those things to promote the sport and they did and they were phenomenal ambassadors. And then they went out the next day and they destroyed people. Mm. I mean, it, it, it was if, <laughs> if you weren't there and saw it 100 times, you'd go, well, how impressive is that? But days when they weren't feeling well, days when, you know, like I saw Ali, you know, a couple of times coming down and he, his only... Uh, real problem was he didn't love the heat or the heat didn't love him. No, that's right. Uh, you know? 
No, for sure. Look, there's a whole bunch of names we could throw in there, but uh, just a huge shout out to Ali and his career. It's absolutely amazing. And inside for me, yeah. uh, I think it's, I wouldn't use the word hands down, but I'll use the words hands down. Nicholas Spirik uh, is one of the most impressive people I've ever met. To balance her law work, her family, her charity, uh, her incredible, uh, you know, Olympic distance career. The few times she's moved up to long distance, she's been spectacular. Mm. I personally believe, you know, and I, I, I've said this to her and she's so humble. She just goes, oh, Barry. Uh, I, I believe if, if uh, t- eight, nine years ago, if Nicholas Spirik's life was not too busy and she spent 24 months to race at Ironman, she would have put in some of the greatest performances that will have ever occurred in the history of the sport because she was a spectacular, you know, like Uber biker. Like we saw that she, she went to the European championships in the marathon. Mm. Um, and I don't know if the combination of her coach, you know, kept one of them at long distance with Daniela and one of them at short distance. I mean, Daniela had a spectacular career coming eighth at the Olympics, uh, as well. But I just think that had she spent two or three years at that long distance, she could have been the equivalent of the spectacular Chrissy Wellingtons and Daniela Reefs and, you know, and, and Marinda Carfries and, you know, those people who just are icons at the Ironman distance. I think she could have done that as well. And the average person who only paid attention to Ironman wouldn't have necessarily respected Nicola in the way that she should have been respected long distance for the same thing that she was short distance. And then look at the length of her career Look at all the things she's done. And just this morning, I got a, a text in that she's coming to do yeah, the, she is. the Canadian Open in, uh, mm-hmm. in Edmonton. So, you know, it's the end of unbelievable career. And, and on top of that is just an even more amazing person. So um, Couldn't I, agree I would more. put her into that thing and we could name Gwen's and 10 other people. But uh, for uh, me, Nicholas, no, duration. A, what a great answer. What a great answer. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to get her on the podcast. It actually took me quite a while, um, but got her on the podcast. And one of the funny takeaways of that episode was that she never saw herself really as a professional athlete. She just <laughs> said, no, I'm just a, an amateur and just happened to win Go Olympic fast. golds and Olympic silvers. And and I think there's a little bit in her from the conversations I've had with her. I don't know that Ironman was truly her passion. She was a bit like me with that. It was kind of like... I think I could have done all right at Ironman, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I, I love the, the all-out power racing. I mean, I'm watching her go a sub-eight Ironman, you know, just a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, when she does want to go into the long di- distance, she does very, very well. But, you know, I remember her as a junior in 98, 99 at the Lausanne yeah. World Champs and, you know, winning that World Junior Champs. And here we are 23 years later, and she's still the top of the world. It's it's an insanely long career. And you've got to remember, during that time... Probably one year when I talked to her of being in the Olympics. Yeah. Literally, had she been one year older, she would have joined that, you know, Magli Mesmer and, you know, Bridget McMahon, that, that era of women, probably on that Swiss uh, team for Sydney and literally could have said, I've been to every Olympic Games that ever existed, uh, et cetera. I mean... It just, it's just off the charts. And then you got a law degree and then you've got two or three kids and then you've got <laughs> charity, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a team. Her and Rito are, you know, no, like, know. again, most people, if you haven't followed the sport long enough, don't know how incredibly accomplished Rito, uh, her husband was, mm-hmm. uh, as well. So it, I just have such, such, uh, you know, admiration for her. And I got that she didn't have 
the the real jizz, you know, to just go for it at uh, and and be an Ironman athlete just because of the time and maybe it didn't speak to her. But there's no doubt in my mind, watching how well she could swim, she could bike and run a marathon that it would have been something she would have excelled at, not just did okay at. I agree with you, mate. It's quite extraordinary that both Daniela and, and Nicola training partners under Brett and Sutton, and they'd both be thrown in the argument of greatest of all time and their resumes. Um, just exceptional. Mate, quickly before I let you go, um, predictions for 2022 and beyond. All right, let's start with Kona. Who's going to win Kona Ironman World Champs 2022? What do you think? Let's put ourselves out there. I'll, I'll give one too. Okay, well, I am as Homer as you can go. And in the book, you'll read a section in a chapter that I have been to Hawaii every year and will go back to Hawaii every year until Lionel Sanders retires <laughs> or wins that bastard of a race. I have a hockey stick with a Canadian flag on it to hand to him when he gets 200 meters for the finishing line. Um, so I was glad that he did not win, um, the unofficial, official, unofficial Hawaii Ironman in St. George, because it would have been a weird place to win Hawaii if you only win it once. Um, so I'm going to go with Lionel Sanders simply because, uh, I'm an emotional guy and lots of people say you're a loser. That's okay. Um, and I know that there's some, some other guys in there that are going to have just, no, of course. we're having fun, mate. We're having fun and you're allowed to have fun and pick your favorites. And I'm going to do yeah. the same. I'm going to pick the old dog. Jan Fadino is going to come back from injury, surprise everybody and silence the critics. So there you go. We're, bo- we're both a bit soft, mate. That's all we are. We're picking our, <laughs> our people, you know, Jan Fadino the other week was so great. I, I was meant to record an episode and the guy that was coming on had to postpone and I literally texted Jan Fadino, which in the world of triathlon is not a, yeah. and he's, I said, mate, I need you to do a podcast tomorrow morning with me. Can you do that? And he did. And, and those kind of people, when your mates are that good, and I know he had a lot on, Mate, the guy, he is injured and he's dealing with all sorts of other things and, and here he was, he came on. So for me, I just want to back him because he's a friend and I'd love to see him get healthy and have one more decent crack, you know, as a 41-year-old, which he'll be 41. I guess he's not 41 yet, but all right, for the women, who we got? Uh, well, I, I've never given up on this woman's talent and that's Daniela Reef. Um, <laughs> you know, she, uh, it was wonderful to see, like most of her career, she would be happy, you know, finishing with a win or whatever and not that emotional, but to watch her mm. in St. George, you know, just how, how passionate she was. Um, and you know, you love it when people start to give up on you and you, you like, there's a new hunger to come back and prove. And I mean, you don't lose that kind of power on the bike and, you know, she's a very good swimmer and you know, the things she's overcome, whether it was getting stung by jellyfish or whatever the case may be, so uh, I think that she has this renewed hunger and I would you know, love to see her add another one. I mean, she's already in the beyond iconic stage. Um, so let's just add another, you know, kind of one more to that trophy. Okay. You and I are going to agree on that one. I'm a huge fan de- of Daniela, not only as an athlete, but as a human being and a person and have always enjoyed 
our time. Whether she's she's quite good at the parties too, mate. She's she, 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 she's a good time. Um, so incredible athlete, um, and also finding a way without being coached by Brett Sutton and having to find herself and and train herself. I think it's been, you know, it's always like, can she do it on her own? And I think St George proved that. So I'd be excited to see her come back and really do well at um, Kona. All right, the World Series. Who's going to win that? Men and women. Wow, that's that is um, <laughs> that's a hard one. <laughs> it, it is on a couple of things because I, I'm going to show my ignorance now, um, and I can't recall if they're counting points from last year into this oh, year. Oh yeah, it is getting a bit confusing, isn't yeah, it? It's 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 been an odd. You know, first yeah. of all, kudos to the ITU World Triathlon and everyone who has kept events going during the pandemic because uh, you know you just you realize how complicated dealing with, you know, mm, national mm. health federations and how you get athletes into a hotel and out and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm personally believing that this current era is um, a little bit, I'm just going to put it like a gray zone where the, for the better part of the last 18 months, I'm not necessarily sure that, that the ultimate ranking is really truly the ultimate ranking, meaning, you know, is yeah. guy number five or girl number six really the fifth or sixth best or are they just the athlete who happened to be close enough? You know, the Aussies couldn't get out of Australia very easily and some of the Kiwis weren't racing and so forth. So I'm just purely enjoying watching the racing. You know, I was in Montreal and literally I'm looking down and Hayden Wild is coming around the transition zone. He, his chain has popped off. And he's bent over with his hand on the chain. He is doing a 180 around the roundabout to go back out. The pack has left him by about 50 meters. Uh, and this absolutely spectacular machine of a dude is dealing with the stress of the crowd, trying to do a 180 with one hand, put his chain back on, knowing that the pack has gotten away. And he catches back up. Uh, and then he and Alex, she, you know, with their just unbelievable, uh, you know, run out there. And like, you know, when you're standing there, uh, I mean, I miss the hell of, of announcing. I miss it desperately. Mm. But, you know, I literally paid for my own ticket to go to Montreal because I've never missed the world championships. And I'm like, just because I'm not doing commentary. I mean, I'm a fan of the sport. I bought a ticket. I went to the crappiest little hotel I could find in Montreal and, and by myself, you know, uh, stayed for two days and watched the world championships in Montreal. So, you know, watching Hayden, watching Alex Yee, they are a very special group of athletes. And in you, when you realize that Alex Yee probably should have just gone running, you know, the athletics, uh, British athletics wanted that kid. He was so talented watch that crash that he had and what could have been career ending. And now to see the success that he's having, you know, I mean, just the continuation of the Brownlee monsters, which were a continuation of Spencer Smith and Simon Lessing. I mean, what a, what an incredible career uh, the British program has had. And, you know, I was so inspired to watch, uh, you know, Georgia Taylor Brown have, you know, no bike. She three days before she still didn't have a bike and she dealt with the pressure of that, et cetera. So, I'm, I'm less going to stick out a name and just say the quality of the racing is spectacular. Um, I don't think the rankings are as legitimate right now as, as mm. they could be, but that's because some athletes haven't necessarily got it. And the person who wins the title may not be the best athlete in the whole world. It might be the person who raced four or five times. I mean, here's Flora Duffy whose bike doesn't show up and, you know, doesn't get a chance to race, but um, the quality and the depth, if you, you know, if you and I look now, the 30th place athlete in my estimation is more skilled today 
than they were at any point oh, the in the last insane. years. We, we could yeah. do a whole podcast just on, How about on you? that. Who do you see winning the women's title? The women's title, I think if Flora gets a bike, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know where the points are, a bit like you, but yeah. I, 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 it's hard for me not to just consider always Flora Duffy at the top of that list. I think she's got to the point now where she almost doesn't need to be pushing the envelope she just needs to be ticking boxes um and 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 i remember that in my own career where there was an almost a a tipping point where you you're building 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 and now it's now it's a matter of maintaining and not going for too much for the next five years and i think you know when we have that uh, that that conversation of greatest athletes of all time you know flora's starting to throw a name in there with you know i think she's got 10 time world champion olympic gold medalist i mean Insane. Well, I hope you have a chance to race at home. I mean, I'm so sad that uh, Bermuda did not happen mm. in that timely fashion after her gold because, you know, I was in Stockholm when Lisa uh, Norden was able to race maybe two, three weeks after her silver medal at the London mm. Olympic. And to watch the adulation of a home crowd. I mean, usually at that era, the men went the second race, but they put the women's race last. And Lisa won the race at home three weeks after winning the Olympic uh, silver medal in that incredible mm-hmm. sprint finish with Nicholas Birk. And so I- I'm sad that, that you know, top of her game, Flora Duffy did not get to entertain the Bermudians, um, you know, in that same Olympic year. I mean, she'll, she, I would be willing to bet that the race at the end of this season will be more important to her than Xterra, oh, then yeah. <laughs> the world title, you know, whatever, like that's the race because these people knew me when I was 11 and 12, they had every television turned on. I'm pretty sure her face is on the money now in Bermuda. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure of that. We know she got a street named after and a, and a public holiday, I believe as well. So How cool is that? <laughs> I want Greg Bennett holiday. That's what I want. It would be good. Yeah. And I think I would, uh, for the men, I would say the same as you. I think Alex Yee is the standout with, um, with Hayden Wild just right clipping there, which just gives us great races, you know, and I think eventually Hayden will wear him down. I'm just not sure if it's going to be this year, but I think, um, you know, with Hamish Carter in his corner and, and a couple of the other New Zealand greats, I think Hayden Wild come Paris will be very interesting to watch. Um, I'm excited about Paris for all the French athletes. You know, when you look at Cassandra Bogrand. I'm really hoping that Vincent Lewis can come back. He's one of my all-time faves. So I'd love the French to do well on home soil come Paris, but um, I'm going to have you back on before Paris so we can dissect Paris more then. What do you think? Uh, that would be fun. Listen, I, I'm sure that uh, every one of your listeners tuned out about an hour and 27 minutes. <laughs> Not at all. I don't care. As long as when I got to have some fun, um, two of us enjoyed the day and, and maybe one other viewer or listener will no, tune in. At our our mums might be that. still listening mate no look honestly these stories are just fantastic barry and uh i'm sure everybody's still listening um it just really is wonderful to have a conversation with somebody that has the knowledge the history the love and the passion for sport that you've learned so much you've had so many wonderful lessons and the highest highs and and you've had some pretty rough, rough lows along the way but just your passion is contagious mate and uh i truly appreciate you as i know People like Simon Whitfield, we've, we've celebrated you on this podcast, um, you know, and what you've meant for the sport of triathlon. So a huge shout out and a, and a massive thank you for all you've done. And obviously a big thank you for coming on and spending your morning chatting to me, mate. I truly appreciate it. 
Well, it's huge. And, you know, not unlike Joel Filiol or, or these other coaches that wish they were great athletes, if I could have stopped the puck a few more times as a 15-year-old, <laughs> I, would not, I would not have been uh, rolling around in triathlon for the last 40 years. So I'm, I'm happy that I let a few more pucks go by me, you know, as a 15-year-old and I was able to have this incredible journey. And I, I hope that some of those stories come out, you know, in the book, Chasing Greatness. Mm-hmm. And and I would love to hear uh, from some of your listeners if they do pick up the book, you know, what either spoke to them or a memory that they had that it triggered, uh, et cetera. It would be wonderful because I love interacting with people that, you know, do what we do and, and have the lifestyle that we have. Awesome, buddy. Well, Barry, thanks again, mate, for coming on. Truly appreciate it. For everybody listening, you can actually find Barry on any question. You can go to anyquestion.com and, and Barry Shepley will be there. You can go ask him follow-up questions to this episode and he'll be able to answer them there for you. You can also find all the show notes, timestamps, uh, the links and coupon codes at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks a lot for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.